For those of you who are new to the journey, you might not know that uh, we started a second site three weeks ago uh, on Greenwood Street in Quinsigamond Village. And so as part of starting this second site, we've been revisiting our vision and values as a church. One church, two locations, Bell Hill, Quinsigamond Village. So we've been, but we've been revisiting our values. And so the last three weeks, we've been talking about what we think God has called us to be and become as a church. Uh, what he wants us to be doing as a church. To love God, love one another, love our neighbor. Today I'm going to be talking about that third piece. Loving our neighbors. Okay? So if you would, would you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. It's on page 731 of our Pew Bibles. Okay? Now, for those of you who like the big idea right up front, here it is. My big idea is that followers of Jesus love their neighbors. Christ-honoring churches love and bless their communities. Followers of Jesus love their neighbors. Christ-honoring churches bless their, love and bless their communities, okay? And I'm going to be looking at two passages today to try to unpack that for us. So first one from Luke 7, chapter Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so I forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Let me set the scene a bit. Jewish religious leader named Simon invites Jesus to a dinner party. We're not told why Simon invites Jesus. Maybe he was just curious about Jesus. Maybe he was scoping Jesus out, trying to figure out if he was kosher. This is, by the way, one of my bad jokes, so you feel free to laugh. Thank you for your mercy. Simon invites Jesus to the party, but he doesn't actually welcome Jesus to the party. He doesn't do any of the things a welcoming host would do in that culture. And in that culture, the way he treats Jesus is worse than an insult. Anyway, Simon invites Jesus to this dinner party. Right in the middle of the dinner, a woman crashes the party. Apparently, this woman is well-known. Simon knows who she is, knows that, he has, that she has lived a sinful life. It's real clear that Simon does not want her to be there. This woman, she comes behind Jesus. She's weeping, weeping so much that she's wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. She wipes those feet, those dirty feet. She wipes them with her hair. Picture that. And then she pours expensive perfume on them. What she does is an extraordinary act of devotion and of humility. Simon sees all this. It doesn't move him at all. In fact, he's scandalized and offended by her. He looks at her with a heart of stone and he's offended and angry at Jesus because Jesus Jesus isn't trying to get rid of her. Jesus, however, knows what Simon is thinking, so he turns and addresses him. Simon, I have something to tell you. And he tells Simon a story, a story about two people who owe money to a moneylender. One owes a lot, one not so much. But the problem is that neither one of them has enough to pay back. So what does the guy do, the moneylender? He forgives them both. He forgives the debt of both of these people. Jesus is telling a story about owing what you can't pay back, being freely forgiven that debt, and about how you respond to being forgiven. The appropriate, the right response to forgiveness is gratitude and love. Then Jesus has a question for Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Look at her, Simon. Do you see her? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but this woman has poured perfume on my feet. Simon, do you see her? Do you see what she's doing? I tell you, Simon, her sins have been forgiven. Her great love has shown that. Do you see her, Simon? I said earlier that this woman was well-known, that Simon knew her, but the truth is, She may have been well-known, but she wasn't known well. She wasn't known well. Simon did not know her. He didn't want to know her. He saw her, but he didn't really see her. For Simon, she wasn't a woman. She was a sinner. That's it, a sinner. 
She was someone to avoid, someone to look down on, someone to judge and to shame. Now, what the woman did was culturally inappropriate. It was shockingly intimate. And even more so in that culture than it would be in our culture. But what motivated her was profound, unfiltered gratitude and love. She's a wo- she was a woman who'd been hurt, wounded. A woman who'd been branded and rejected. And she was a woman who was desperately hungry for love and acceptance, for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness. She was a woman open to God, hungry for God. And when God in Christ reached out to her, she received it. And she responded. Jesus' extravagant love for her unleashed a response of extravagant love and devotion from her. Simon may have been the one who sent out the invitation to the party, but it was the woman who actually welcomed him at that party. Jesus saw that, and he saw her. He saw her heart. He understood her pain. He received her tears, accepted her love. Jesus refused to be intimidated by what other people thought of him. He opened his life to sinners, welcomed them into his life. Welcomed them as they were. Was willing to enter into their life with them. Jesus welcomed and loved her. Now, there are two ways of seeing people. There's the way of so much of our world, our culture. It's, it's seeing people on the surface, seeing only their outward appearance, seeing only the, the color of their skin or the way they talk, the way they dress, where they come from, where they work. When we see people that way, what we're really doing is trying to figure out whether they fit into our club. And if they don't, then it's, just, it's a reason to just judge them and reject them, to shame them. The way of Jesus, however, is completely different. Jesus looks under the crust. He sees and understands people's hearts, sees what's in their hearts, their their wounds, their scars, their fears, their sorrows, their hopes, their dreams, their yearnings, their loves. He sees them not to judge them. He sees them to know them and to love them. We have to ask ourselves a couple questions. What prevents us from really seeing people? Really seeing people. Seeing people who are different than us. What prevents us from seeing the humanity that we hold in common with them? What causes us to shut our hearts to people, to dehumanize and to reject them? All of us make snap judgments about other people. We typecast people. We categorize them. We, uh, we do this automatically, almost unconsciously. We do it. 
we're often not even aware that we're doing it. And the question for us is, are we willing to stop and move beyond our initial judgments and try to find out what's really inside them, to find out who they really are beneath the crust? People are so much more than the sum total of their failures and sins. They're so much more than their past or even present circumstances. God made them in his image. He loves them. And this ought to make us jump up and down with joy because that's exactly the way God feels about each one of us. He made us in his image. He loves us. Now let's go back to Simon for a moment. Simon does not see a woman overcome with gratitude by the love of Jesus. He sees only a sinner. And in his world, sinners do not deserve respect or kindness or love in any form. Simon cannot see this woman the way Jesus does. And it's because Simon cannot see himself either. He can't see that like the woman, he has a debt of sin that he can't pay off. He doesn't see that about himself. He can't see that he needs forgiveness and grace and mercy and love, unconditional love, just like the woman does. The only real difference between the woman and Simon, the only real difference is that she receives Jesus' love and Simon rejects it. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, sees both the woman and he sees Simon. He knows that Simon is a sinner who, who needs grace. I asked earlier, why did Simon invite Jesus to his party? We don't know why. When it was clear, however, that, Jesus, that Simon did not approve of Jesus. He invites him to a party, but he doesn't approve of Jesus. Why would you do that? Why would you invite him then? But the bigger question, the bigger question is, why did Jesus accept the invitation? Because I'm pretty sure that Jesus knew what was in Simon's heart. He knew what Simon thought of him. And the answer to that question is that Jesus has grace even for heartless, soulless, merciless, loveless sinners like Simon. Jesus accepted Simon's invitation because he loves even Simon. Each of us is a sinner who needs grace and mercy and forgiveness. All of us are sinners saved by God's grace. So let's be people who thank God for his mercy to us. And let's be channels of that mercy to others, all others. May we see people with the eyes of Jesus and may we receive them with the love of of Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with journeys, vision, and values? We believe that God has called us to be and become an intergenerational, multicultural, intercultural church that out of the overflow of God's grace and love to us, loves him back, loves one another, and loves our neighbor. Every person we meet. Now this is a hard thing to do. 
There's no blueprint for this really. And it often gets messy, it gets confusing, and we make mistakes. We hurt one another unintentionally as we try to become this kind of community together. So why does God want us to do this hard thing? It's because God wants us to demonstrate and bear witness to the fact that God's love is stronger than the world's apathy and hate. God's love is stronger than the world's apathy, the world's hate. God's love working in and through us is strong enough to break down every barrier that we put between us. It's strong enough to transform enemies into friends and strangers into family, into brothers and sisters, together in the family of Christ. By God's grace, not of the overflow of his love for us, we're learning, we're learning to respect and celebrate one another's differences while embracing the crucial facts that we all have in common. What do we have in common? Well, first, what we have in common is we're all made in the image of God. We all, therefore, have intrinsic value and dignity. All people matter to God. And as God's people... All people matter to us. Second, we're all sinners saved only by God's grace. None of us have earned God's favor, so at the cross we're all equal. All of us are equal. We're all made equal at the foot of the cross. We're all adopted into God's family when we believe. We're all brought together as brothers and sisters in Christ equally when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. So we are becoming a very diverse people and we're learning how to embrace, respect, enjoy and celebrate our diversity because we are all united in the one family of Christ. What this means is that when we meet people, we don't just see the outside. We don't just see sinners. We don't just see people different. What we see is the inside. We see people made in God's image. We see people who are loved by him. Our potential brothers and sisters in Christ and part of our community of faith. And we treat them that way. We welcome them and treat them as family. That's God's call upon us. Now, I want to look at second passage with us for a few minutes as well. This is in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. It's a, it might be a familiar passage for a lot of us. It's on page uh, 735 in our Pew Bibles. On one occasion, an expert in law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, okay, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. 
They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going by, going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. So again, setting the scene a bit. Jesus is teaching a group of people. A religious scholar stands, scholar stands up to test Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns the question back at him. What do you think? How do you read the scriptures? The guy says, love the, love the Lord your God, love, other, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, okay, good, you got it. That's right, go do it. He's not happy with that answer, doesn't want to do it. So he says, okay, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story about a man who's beaten half to death by robbers left on the side of the road. A Jewish priest walks by, sees the man, sees him, but just kind of walks right by him. Another Guy comes by, a Levite, another religious professional. He also sees the man, does the same thing, just walks right by him. But then there's a Samaritan who comes. A Samaritan, someone hated, despised by the Jews. He sees the man and he stops. He stops, he takes pity on him. He doesn't walk on by, he goes to the man and he helps him in every way he can. He takes him to an inn. Leaves money for him to be cared for. The Samaritan is the one who stops, takes pity. And Jesus asked the question, okay, which of these three is the neighbor? And there's religious scholars as well, the guy who had mercy on him. What did Jesus do? He told a story to turn this religious scholar's question back on him. There are two kinds of questions you could ask. The first question would be the religious scholar's question, who is my neighbor? And that question is designed to limit your moral responsibility to other people. It's a self-protective kind of question. Jesus raises a different question. Jesus' question is, whose neighbor am I? And that's the kind of question that when you ask that question of yourself, it enables you not to limit your responsibility, but to extend love to other people. Whenever you can help them, you help them. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It means to, you see someone with a need 
that you can fill it and you stop and you help. You just plain help. What it means is you want for other people what you want from yourself. You treat people as you would treat people close to you. Now, we're trying as a church to be good neighbors in the neighborhoods in which God has placed us, here on Bell Hill and in Quinsigamond Village. We're trying to strengthen the sense of community and well-being in these neighborhoods to, uh, to uh, love and bless people there. So there are a number of things we're doing now. We are, we're investing in our neighborhood schools here at, at, uh, in Bell Hill. We've, we have a pretty substantial investment in Belmont Street Community Schools. We fund reading programs. We have volunteers to go in every week. In the next uh, couple of weeks, you'll be hearing, we'll be giving, sending out a big ask there's a need that Belmont Street School has. It's going to be a big ask. So start preparing yourself for that. Um, but, but we are invested in that school because we believe that investing in kids makes a difference in the community as a whole. We, uh, we embrace and support our friends here in recovery. And by the grace of God, we're becoming friends with our friends in recovery. And here's, here's the thing. This is a little bit of a side note. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, it's not just our neighbors that benefit. We're the ones that benefit. So as we were getting to know our friends in recovery, we're learning a lot about what it means to love one another. We're learning a lot about what it means to be open and honest before one another and before God. So we're all being blessed. Not just, not just the folks who are encouraged, but all of us are being blessed through this. And that happens across the spectrum. Whenever we step out to try to love people, we do get something in return. We don't do it to get something in return, but we do get something in return. We do other stuff. We open our gym to neighborhood teens. This gym upstairs, um, yeah, upstairs, it gets used a lot throughout the week. And we're glad for that. And then Sigamond Village, there, there, there's a huge AA group that meets there and an NA group that meets there. And we're glad that we've got space where they can come and, and, and uh, encourage and support one another and we can get to know them. We uh, befriend and feed people and, do, and help to clothe and all kinds of stuff in Maine South as we're doing this afternoon. We, we, uh, we embrace, we're trying to learn how to embrace the refugees that God has brought into our midst here in this city. And we're learning and being blessed by them as well. Now, there are two big obstacles that we need to overcome. One obstacle is we have too much fear. And the other obstacle, second obstacle, is that we don't have enough time. Not enough time. Too much fear, not enough time. Now, what about this too much fear? What's that about? Well, a lot of times we're afraid of what other people will think of us. We're, we're afraid of feeling uncomfortable. We're, we're afraid of being manipulated or taken advantage of. Now, here's the truth. These are not completely irrational fears. When you start trying to love the people around you, there will be other people who will say, you're just coddling sinners or you're just... Uh, Helping people become dependent, become on you, become lazy and dependent. I've heard that a lot from, from people. People say that. 
Um, it is true that when we invest in people, when we get to know people, when we step into their lives and, and bring them into our lives, things get kind of messy sometimes. And we, you'll feel uncomfortable, sometimes really uncomfortable. That, that happens. And then there are some people who will take advantage of us. That happens too. Now here's the answer to all of these fears. So what? So what? So what if, we, if other people don't like what we do? Is that going to kill us? No. So what if it gets uncomfortable? Uncomfortable, we can live with uncomfortable. We're okay with that, right? They won't always be uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. So what if we get taken advantage of? Well, that's okay too. Let's be taken advantage of. We can deal with that too. We'll keep going. You know what's a lot worse than any of these fears? What's a whole lot worse, a whole lot worse than that, is letting our fear get in the way of responding to people in faith and in love. If that happens, our hearts will shrivel our souls will dry up and we will miss out big we'll miss out on being with Jesus because Jesus is in all of those situations he's in all of them we never walk into a situation with other people alone Jesus has already been already there before us in front of us welcoming us into it with him. When we try to love people, we are right smack in the middle of where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And when we harden our hearts because of fear, we miss out on Jesus. And that ought to scare us a whole lot more than anything else. Now, I actually don't think that fear is the biggest obstacle for most of us here at The Journey because I am awed. I am simply awed all the time by how much you guys love. I am awed by how much you guys have loved and poured out grace upon me and my family. I am awed by how quickly you respond to needs as we bring them before you. So I want to say thank you for all of that. Uh, I... I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I do think that one of the things all of us do struggle with, though, is the issue of time. Not enough time. I think it, the obstacle, the biggest obstacle to neighboring well is time. Because loving people well requires a lot of time and space. Now, there's a lie, a big lie, actually, we have to debunk. We keep telling ourselves that things will settle down someday, and when they settle down, then we'll have a lot more time to invest in, to pour out in loving other people. I say that to myself all the time, and it's a lie to myself. Here's the thing. The truth is that things will only settle down when you die, or when you do something intentional to adjust your schedule. And this 
you know, it may be easier to adjust your schedule than to die. Amen. Amen. So let's practice the art of elimination. Let's eliminate good things from our lives so that we can have time and space for the best things. Time and energy for loving Jesus and loving other people. We're trying to do that on a whole church level. We practice a simple church kind of philosophy here. What that means is that we're trying to do only a few things, not everything. We're trying to do only a few things, but to do them well. The things we ask all of us, each of us to do is to participate in worship services, be part of life group, two, and then three, be part, uh, engage in some kind of service. Three things. And in our life groups, we intentionally uh, schedule them to meet only twice a month, not every week, because we want you to have unstructured time to be able to invest in relationships with other people so that you have some time and space to actually love people and not just talk about loving people, you know? So there's some holy habits that each of us needs to develop, I think, okay? The first holy habit is to pray daily. Lord, give me eyes to see the people around me as you see them. Help me to love them as you love them. And Lord, help me to identify and change the things in my life to get in the way of loving you and being able to love others. A daily prayer. Second, find out who your neighbors are. It's astonishing that we live in a world where you can live someplace for 25, 30, 50 years and not know the people around you in any real way. We've got to ask God to help us to change that wherever that's true of us. And that applies in our personal neighbors where our homes actually are and also our church homes. We need to get to know the people in our church neighborhoods here on Bell Hill and Quinsigaman Village. So we need to get out into our neighborhoods. We need to look for opportunities to meet people and get to know them. So it, we ought to be actually walking through our neighborhoods, both personal and church, walking through them, praying on a regular basis, asking God to open doors. Here's the thing. This, now this thing is going to be really hard for us, so, so get ready. Let's become people who greet other people all the time. I know we live in New England, and in New England, the common thing to do is when, you, when you're walking by somebody, just go like this, just as if you didn't see them when you have seen them. Instead, let's just say, hey, how you doing? Beautiful day, isn't it? Or, man, it's cold out. Let's, let's actually intentionally greet people and do it consistently. In fact, let's, let's challenge ourselves to do that with every person we walk by for the next 30 days. And let's find out what God does with that. Maybe he'll surprise us. Maybe somebody else will stop and say hello back. Maybe you'll actually meet somebody you've been walking by for decades, or, you know, and they actually stop and you have a conversation. Who knows? Let's try it. Greet people. Now, Let's also be willing to ask some questions to find out who they are. So, for example, in our church neighborhood, 
We've actually gone around here in Bell Hill, and we're starting to do it in Quinsigamond Village. We've gone around, and we've asked people, what can we as a neighborhood do to get to know one another? What can... what? What are, what are some of the needs? What would you like to see change? What, uh, what do you like best about your neighbor? We're finding out, we've been trying to find out who our neighbors are. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep asking questions. Let's, you know, just a little bit out of our comfort zone, let's start asking questions and pushing conversations forward a bit. I think people are dying to tell us. And we just have to be willing to listen. To ask and to listen. We need to be people who observe, who look for needs to meet, look for ways to, to meet needs together. And then we also need to be people who open our homes to other people. Now, on the personal level, that means we need to cultivate the habit of hospitality. Now, some of us, when we think about hospitality, what we think that means is we, we have a sparkling clean house and we put together a lavish spread and then when we're, when we're ready to do that, we invite people in. That's not what hospitality is. Hospitality isn't about presentation. It's about presence. It's about presence. It's about being there. It's about... Um, making yourself available to people, about noticing them, welcoming them, making them feel comfortable, making them feel wanted and at home. And you can do that with a cup of coffee as much as you can do with a tray of lasagna. And, and I say that begrudgingly because I'd rather have the lasagna. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's not about how much food or the quality of food, or the neatness of your house. It's about being willing to stop and pay attention to the person in front of you. That's hospitality. We need to cultivate that. We need to do that personally in our neighbors. We need to do that as a whole church community. We have a, a dual hope for our two sites, for Bell Hill and Consuming Village. First, we want our church sites to be a launching pad for us, to launch us into our neighborhoods, being and bearing good news to the people in the neighborhoods in which God has placed us. And then second, we want to be a gathering place. The gathering place where people come to be welcome, where they come because they know it's safe. They know it's a welcoming place, a healing place, a place where people can find hope. We want to be people who are launched into neighborhoods to bring hope. We want to be a place where people gather because they find hope. That's our hope. We want to be good neighbors. When we love people the way Jesus loves people, strangers become neighbors. Neighbors become friends. Friends become family. Neighborhoods are blessed. And all heaven rejoices and we rejoice with all of heaven. That's a way of life worth pursuing. Don't you think? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.